Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Perkins Platform. This is a solutions-oriented podcast and live radio show. Each broadcast, we dedicate just about 30 minutes to explore topics of interest for leaders and professionals in education and a variety of other disciplines, and this is your host, Brian Perkins. Uh, Welcome back, everyone. Uh, Glad that you joined us this week. Uh, As usual, have an exciting um, set of guests today. Um, And we're going to talk a little bit about a topic that um, is in the news, and it just seems as though um, it's it's not going to maybe any easier or or go away anytime soon. Not that we are advocating for it to go away, um, but one aspect of this is the question about um, race and why it's so difficult to talk about race. And today we have two um, individuals, research scientists and a PhD student, who are going to talk a little bit about their work. And so I'm pleased to introduce you to you, uh, Camilla Mutoni Griffiths, who is a research scientist at Stanford Spark. They uh, indicate that they are a do tank, and we're going to hear a little bit about that, uh, that actually brings researchers and practitioners together. Um, and then uh, Nikki Sullivan, who is a PhD student in developmental and social psychology at Stanford. So welcome, Camilla and Nikki. Thank you. Great it's to great be to be here. here. Well, glad to have you. So I'm going to start, Nikki. I mean, Camilla. Tell me. I know you're you're on the research staff at at Stanford Spark. Uh, I'm fascinated by uh, this new language. Uh, thank you for introducing that a do tank as opposed to a think tank. So tell me about Stanford Spark. What do you do there, and what are some of your current projects? Yeah, we think it's pretty clever as well. So uh, we're a do tank instead of a think tank because we really prioritize doing the research and especially doing the research in partnership with practitioners. So instead of doing research that sort of stays within the academic bubble, we partner with practitioners in a wide range of uh, domains. So from education to media to tech to uh, health or criminal justice, partner with practitioners who have some sort of problem, issue, question related to social justice, social change, or culture change, uh, and really use the tools uh, supplied by behavioral science to try to study that issue and come up with solutions that are evidence-based and based on research that we conduct in collaboration with our partners. Mm. Ah, okay, fascinating. So tell me, like, what what are some of the questions you have in front of you now? Yeah, so, for example, in the field of education, one of the projects we're working on right now is trying to understand a little bit related to the topic we're talking about today, what uh, the content of books, how the content of books uh, related to race is taught by teachers and understood by students. So we're looking at a large sample of novels that are commonly taught in American schools, especially in English language arts, and we're interested to understand using Uh, natural language processing tools, Uh, so analyzing the language in those novels, uh, how characters of different races are portrayed, how they are positioned, are they positive or negative, Uh, and then seeing how teachers are are teaching these texts and students are interpreting them. 
Um, so that's mm -hmm. one project that we're working on. Uh, another is sort of in a different domain of media. We're interested in how racial representation on TV uh, impacts viewers. And so we are partnering with um, media organizations to look at exactly that question. So looking at TV content, and if we present people with different kinds of TV content with more or less representation, how does that impact their, their racial attitudes, beliefs, and uh, um, biases? Wow, fascinating. Both of those are, are uh, particular areas that I'm really interested in. So I'm going to jump and start first with what you talked about with the content of books. And uh, mm -hmm. Nikki, feel free to jump in, um, is that, you know, we, we are very familiar with what's going on all over the country um, with, right. um, with various school boards and states getting into uh, saying these books are not uh, books that are allowed in our libraries that can't be taught in the curriculum because they're teaching critical race theory, they're teaching uh, racism and division, and we hear all of these things. And, and mm -hmm. so, and, and which is actually what I, what I uh, was really interested in having you on the show to talk a bit about is that, you know, a lot of this has been eliminated. And I saw someone actually created a meme, and it was about one of the books that had been banned in the state of Florida was the story um, uh, about or, and stories about different uh, black children during the early uh, part of integration in the early 1950s uh, and 1960, late 1950s and, and early 60s where like Ruby Bridges was one of the books and mm -hmm. um, had been banned and someone created a meme that said um, it wasn't, she wasn't too young to endure it, but children are too young mm -hmm. to know about, right? And so yeah. what, are yeah. you, what are you finding uh, that's happening? Are you, are you seeing the impact of these books being taken off the shelf and what people are saying about it? Yeah, so in the project we're engaging in right now, we're really at the very beginning stages of trying to understand at a more nuanced level what's in these books uh, so that we can try to understand whether and to what extent they are actually having the impact people are saying that they do. But we do know a lot about the value of teaching students about race, teaching students about difference, about inequality. And that's what, you know, our piece was about that we wrote for Scientific American, Nikki and I, was really trying to bring to earth to the public sort of the science that shows that it's really dangerous for kids not to learn about racial inequality, not to learn about the sort of historical bases of the inequalities we see in the country. And that's really that when we don't teach kids why they see inequalities around them, why it is that certain people live in some neighborhoods and other people live in other neighborhoods, or why some people are more in service jobs. You know, they see, they see black people, for example, working at the grocery store. They might believe that that's because that's something about something inherent about those groups um, mm -hmm. and not understand that there are historical, economic, political reasons why we see inequalities in our society. Um, and without that sort of knowledge base, without that context base, students and kids can come to their own conclusions about where those inequalities come from. And that's really uh, dangerous for us to be promoting in our schools. Yeah. You know, I had my own, and I've shared here probably at least a couple times, 
um, my own experience with my oldest daughter, um, what I, I refer to as I tell the story as the Barbie doll dilemma uh, that was really disconcerting to me very early on um, where, uh, you know, we're trying to figure out um, her, what kind of doll she wanted to have. And and this was at the age of three, uh, kind of the first time she was going to be able to um, to choose her own doll. And intentionally, we had purchased dolls uh, that looked like her and uh, a wide range of 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 ethnic groups. But the point is that uh, at a very early age, as early as three, she had said made a decision that she wanted the white doll because, in her own words, it was prettier. And even though there were just so many intense efforts to make sure that there was representation in her toys and everything else. And so now, you know, as I think about that being the backdrop of where things start, I can only imagine as we take books out that talk about things like discrimination, differences, and so forth, um, how much how much more ingrained that might be. Absolutely, and I think, you know, to, to that point, it goes also beyond just taking books away, but taking away the ability of teachers as well, right? So a lot of these kind of laws that are popping up in school districts and states um, are, are taking it out of the teacher's hands to even talk about these things and limiting the types of things that they can talk about. So that's even a step beyond the books, right, that a teacher might not feel comfortable giving an honest answer to a kid's question, um, trying to understand some of these differences or these inequalities. Um, mm -hmm. And so that really can, can hamstring teachers and educators who are trying to be honest and teach their students, you know, history or, or these important topics and are just unable to do so by these laws that, you know, on the surface seem like they're protecting children, but in the end they're doing the exact opposite. Yeah. Well, so what do you say to the people who say, but uh, teachers haven't been trained to do this well? Now, we've, we've seen reports of teachers who've done things like they, in order to try to teach the lesson about slavery, they've uh, put black children on slave auction blocks, or they've asked students to write essays about arguing on behalf of slavery and so forth. And so some have argued, um, and quite successfully at times, that teachers don't have the expertise to do this. And so what do you say, you know, at least what, what is it, are you, are you looking at all at um, not just the content of the books, but um, also training that one may or may not have in order to uh, address these topics. Yeah, it's definitely, we're definitely not making the argument that we should remain at the status quo where teachers have discretion about whether, what, whether they should talk about it or not and then don't have training, right? I think ultimately what we want to advocate for is not to restrict teachers from having these conversations at all, but to equip them to have them in a better, healthier, more productive way, right? And there's, there's plenty of evidence. There's um, a researcher uh, named Rich Milner who does really excellent work on exactly this question on how to train yep. teachers. And he, he um, dedicates a lot of time and effort and uh, resources to doing really intensive training with teachers to be able to prepare them to have productive, healthy conversations about race with their students. And so it's not that we don't have the tools to do that with teachers. It's just that we haven't necessarily invested in that 
as a priority for teachers to get training in. And I think that that's where our resources should be going rather than restricting teachers from having the option to have these conversations at all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sure, sure. And, and so um, you mentioned content of books. Is it just novels or is it historical books as well? Yeah, so the, the project that I'm involved in now, we're in the early stages, but we're just looking at novels and ELA classrooms in particular because that's where a lot of teachers have a lot of discretion in terms of what books they teach, um, how they talk about the books. Um, and, you know, some districts require certain books to be taught or not, but in a lot of cases, teachers can actually build their own lesson plans, can build their own curricula, their own book lists. And so that's an area where we, I feel like there's a lot of um, potential to affect some change, right? Um, whereas in history text, in history classrooms, there's a little bit less discretion in terms of what textbooks are used, for example, or what books are used. Mm-hmm. And actually, there's a great study that came out uh, just this year or last year um, by Dora Dembski uh, and colleagues who just started at the Stanford Graduate School of Education, um, looking at history textbooks in Texas specifically, and the language that is used around race and gender, um, and finding that they use a lot of, uh, you know, negative language around um, around race in these textbooks. And they did the similar natural language processing analysis of, of textbooks specifically. So that work um, is ongoing and, and there's already a paper out on that. And so we wanted to shift our focus to, to looking at novels because there's a lot of opportunity for teachers to, to select books that have sort of more productive content and more fodder for conversation about identity and race. Uh. Gotcha. So on my message board, I just got a a question that was posted uh, from one of the listeners. It says, um, I'm curious, and this is a listener from New York City, um, uh, I'm curious, what kind of training do you need to teach the truth? I mean, if you're telling a story about race, why you need training to do so? As long as it's the truth, I don't see why you need training. Your response to that? Yeah, it's a good question. I think this is especially relevant for history or social studies teachers. Um, I think that all teachers should be teaching the truth, uh, and that I don't think necessarily requires training. I think the training is in having these conversations in a way that is sensitive to the different students and identities that may be in the classroom. Um, Handling topics uh, that are relevant to current events, for example, might require a little bit of training in terms of how to balance the different opinions, the different positions that might be in your classroom, how to um, talk about something like whiteness or privilege or uh, inequality in a way that that honors students but also tells the truth, right? And I think that we live in a country where race, unfortunately, has not been talked about directly. ever really in, in public domains. It's talked about in sort of obscured coded language. Um, and so in order to provide and equip students to be able to talk about race, inequality, privilege uh, in a nuanced way that acknowledges history, that acknowledges power dynamics, that acknowledges uh, privilege, uh, requires a teacher who is well equipped to do that themselves. And so I think that's where the training comes in, but I, I don't think that we necessarily need to be training teachers to just teach historical fact. I think that should be a given. Yeah. And, and just as a brief follow-up, I'm, I'm just, because I've asked a number of 
guests that I've had, and we've been on you know kind of similar topics. Not that I think that there's some conspiracy, or that I think there's a concerted one concerted effort to um, to hide the truth about um, discrimination and the history of the of this country. Um, but I just I would love to hear your thoughts about what do you think in 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 the majority of cases what do you think is really behind what's the fear people have around this conversation where they're saying that it's actually teaching divisiveness I, I I'm, I'm you know when it first started it, it, the answers or the the rationale that they've given really surprises me, and it just doesn't match the situation. But I'd, I'd love to know what you think about is at the real foundation of the fear of talking about some of the practices that are historically fat. Yeah, uh, Nikki, I would love to have your thoughts on this in addition, but my take, and I think there's um, there's evidence for this in, in psychological research, is that a lot of the, it is, as you mentioned, as you identified, a fear, uh, partially a fear of being named or called out as biased or as racist. Uh, it's also a threatening feeling to feel like what you have or what you've accomplished is the product of some sort of privilege and not the product mm -hmm. of independent hard, mm -hmm. hard work um, because that, those mm -hmm. are really strong and highly held values in our society. And so for someone to tell you that uh, the things that you have or the success that your family has achieved or the position that you have in the world is the product not of your or your family's hard work or not entirely the product of your family's hard work um, but in part, at least, uh, because of some sort of privilege that has been acquired over time and over history. Um, and so I think that there's, there's both sort of a, a fear of being called out as, as biased, which is something that, as Americans, we don't believe is a good thing, right? Um, and then also, I think, a threat uh, of being told that we haven't sort of achieved what we've achieved by our own means. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with that, Camilla. And I'll, I'll just add to here that, and, and Brian, I think you were getting at this a little bit, but that also there has been kind of some broader effort to paint some of what kind of Camilla and I are calling for as something different than what it is, right? So, so much of the discussion is often around critical race theory. Like that's become yeah. this kind of boogeyman for people yeah. to target, which is like kind of laughable because that's just not something that's typically taught in elementary schools and middle schools and high schools, right? This is a, a legal framework that's taught to second and third year law students, not second and third right. graders, but it sounds like this big scary thing. So I think to some extent, there's been an effort to make that the thing that people are talking about, and that might sound big and scary. Um, and so part of the fear and the like not wanting to engage is because there's been this sort of bait and switch on what, what we're actually advocating for and what we actually think people should be talking about, which is really just these accurate discussions of history and of how those, that history relates to, to the present day. Yeah, uh, and, and a lot of those discussions, and I know uh, some of your research, um, Nikki, is um, on exploring how families have 
conversations about race and racism mm-hmm. um, and the consequences of those conversations. It, it's a it's a real difficult uh, um, situation when you think about the education that parents have, like parents and even grandparents might have mm-hmm. um, around those topics that may be skewed to one, you know, one way or another, and then they're having conversations with their children and it becomes a cycle of misinformation. Um, Tell me a little bit about your research. What are you seeing about how families, because there are two parts. I know one is I want to hear about how families are having these conversations from your research, but then also the second part of your research um, around um, how people are encouraging white families to have conversations uh, about race. But let's let's go with the first one was, what are these, how are these conversations happening? Yeah, great question. And so there's this broad literature that, you know, goes back decades looking at kind of what psychologists typically call racial ethnic socialization, which is how parents are talking with their kids about their racial and ethnic identities and all that comes with it. And that literature generally shows that in families of color, these conversations are common. You know, they're happening early, that the parents of color are talking about their children's racial identity with them and what it means and how to move through the world and things to keep an eye out for. Um, but that on the flip side, these conversations are way less common in white families. Um, so research typically shows that their white families are much less likely to be having these conversations. Um, and that also when they do kind of get to having a conversation, um, they're often using these kind of colorblind messages that are really just trying to minimize the importance of race. So these are things like, listen, race doesn't matter. The color of someone's skin isn't important. You shouldn't be paying attention to that, um, which I think on the surface can sound really nice, right? Like we all kind of, we might wish to live in a world where someone was not treated differently because of the color of their skin. But the problem mm-hmm. is that this conveys the idea that that is the world that we live in when that's not the case, right? We know that today, unfortunately, the color of someone's skin does still matter for all sorts of different things, right? The the healthcare they receive, their experiences in education, all of these places. So when white parents are sending these colorblind messages to their children, really their kids are probably getting the wrong message. um, And so are, are taking away that race does not matter. And that makes it basically hard for them to notice discrimination when it does happen. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I, I think about, um, you know, the, the miseducation or lack thereof. Um, uh, people who know me know I come from a uh, very small rural place in northwest Alabama, born and raised, graduated from high school there. And since graduating from high school, and I'm going to say in the last, if I, if I had to guess, maybe the last 10 years, uh, when I've gone home, I noticed that there are these um, placards that have been put up all throughout my neighborhood, um, you know, kind of from these historical societies or what have you, mm-hmm. that are that just a few hundred yards from where I grew up. I mean, literally, my my you know my bedroom growing up as a child um, was a route on the Trail of Tears, and mm-hmm. that was not something. I mean, we learned a little bit about it in eighth grade Alabama uh, history, but that just something as significant as one of the places called Tuscumbia Landing that I eventually had to go and research is right there Mm -hmm. in town. 
you know, and we didn't learn about it. And, of course, mm-hmm. because it's, it's embarrassing. Mm-hmm. It, is, it is one of the nation's tragedies. And so I think about just from a, from a very personal standpoint, I know there are countless stories like that where it was not a part of our education system. And mm-hmm. so how do we encourage, because that's tough. If you didn't learn it, you know, that should have been a part of, you know, eighth grade Alabama history, if not more. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you didn't learn it then, what are the chances that adults are going to go back and read about it right. and learn about it for the purpose of teaching their children accurate history? Yeah, and I want to pull out something you just said I think is really important, which is that you learned about this and it felt embarrassing. It felt, you know, it's hard to acknowledge when something has happened uh, that is sort of in contrast maybe to your view of what the place you grew up is or the country you grew up in. And I think this goes back to your earlier question of why it's so divisive, the idea of talking about these things. I think Americans have this idea of what America is, of what, and especially white Americans, I would say, have this idea of what America is, what its ideals are, that it's a fundamentally good place. And I think it can be really scary and embarrassing, right, to acknowledge uh, that that may not be true in, in every case, and that there are instances, large instances of American history that contradict that idea. Um, and there are lots of examples of how we have sort of struggled with this idea of America being a fundamentally good um, and just place. And mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think ultimately one of the things that this whole debate surfaces is that we have a really hard time reconciling sort of the good with the bad, right? So it, it, it is true yeah. that the good can exist alongside the bad, but I think we have this, this idea that we have to make it a uniformly good place with a good history and, and to introduce any nuance or ambiguity to that idea for students, I think is really threatening and really scary. Um, but I think it can be a good thing to teach children how to acknowledge something, especially something like their own country as a place that can have flaws and work on them and work to be something better and that that's a continual process and not one that we have finished and and we're done with, right? That we went through Mm -hmm. the civil rights movement and now we uh, have come out of that just a a good place that doesn't do anything wrong. Um, And so Mm -hmm. I think that's also part of this is not just teaching historical facts, but teaching the idea that people and places are sort of continually growing and can improve and have flaws and the good can exist alongside the bad. Yeah, mm-hmm. excellent point. Excellent point. And so um, I know uh, further, Nikki, some of your research is on um, how to encourage white families to have more effective conversations about race and racism. Uh, what are you seeing there? Yeah, so that's that's really where we've turned in part because we did some work kind of before and after the summer of 2020. So before and after George Floyd was murdered and there was a surge in protests, which showed that for white parents, there really wasn't any change. They weren't having these conversations, which made us say, okay, how can we really motivate these? Um, And I mean, I think there's a couple different things. This work is still really early. And so I can't say anything with certainty here, but I think there's things we're thinking about, one of which is just that I think some families maybe want to have these conversations but don't know how. Um, yeah. So in one project, we're really just, we, we bring a parent and a kid on and we just prompt them to have a discussion with this kind of little storybook about police brutality and about, you know, 
Mm. The, the storybook ends and we have our little 10-year-old white protagonist asking, like, why do the police in my town keep hurting black people? Um, yeah. And then we, we let the parent and the kid have a conversation. And we see that they're, a lot of these families are able to, to get at least somewhere. here. They're able to talk about it. They're willing to talk about it when they've been prompted. Um, but it's clear that a lot of these families have never discussed it. They just needed that little push from us. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Right. And we see, you know, you see kind of incredible things here where fairly frequently these, you know, eight, nine and 10 year old white children are surprised that racism still exists. From, from what mm. they've learned, they thought that it was the civil rights movement, and now it's over. So they think that the book we're reading them is in the past. Um, one, one girl, you know, explicitly says, wait, I thought they were done beating up black people. Um, she had no mm. idea that this was still going on. So I think for those yeah. families, just some sort of prompt is all they need. Um, yeah. But I think one of the big questions is for all these other families who are maybe you know, more resistant or uncertain, you know, what might push them. Um, and, and we're still really trying to learn that. Um, sure. Because clearly we need to motivate all of these families to, to you know, be having sure. these conversations, even when they can be difficult or challenging. Right, right. And I just think about, Camilla, the, the point you made about the, the nuance and the, the really the paradox that exists, right, with – with who we are, at, you know, in, as a country, the roots, and um, thinking about the fact that it's not all um, a, a beautiful story. I mean, there are all kinds of stories that are being and, and myths that are being debunked um, every day about who some mm-hmm. of our historical heroes, you know, the heroes have been and what they did and actually, like, what they actually did and didn't do. Um, but, but I think about, um, also that in some ways that it's, it's what makes it difficult is that people, um, it is, it is difficult to face that some of this isn't over, but that we have the, from a historical perspective, a, a real, um, a history that is, that has has not yet been resolved, you know, so that when these stories, like we've been told that George Washington was X or Christopher Columbus was Y, and then suddenly that's changed, you know, it's like, so in a day, you have people taking down statues and they're like, that was all a lie, or it was based on a lie or what have you. That's really difficult for people to face when in a lot of ways it undo it will undo their childhood you know it's like i mm-hmm. now i'm i'm it's it's it is fear because that means a lot of what i learned and that i've grounded who i am as an adult in my elementary school experience or my high school experience you're now telling me a lot of that was untrue that's mm-hmm. got to be terribly unsettling Exactly. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I want to be sure to, before we wrap up, to say that, you know, we've been talking a lot about the impact that not talking about these things might have on, on white children, but it's also the case, and there's, there's, there's psychological evidence for this, that there's benefits for students of color for having these conversations present in school and for having yeah. teachers acknowledge uh, this history, acknowledge the current role of race and discrimination and inequality on communities of color and 
not yeah. having that in schools is, is a detriment to, to all students all for students. different reasons, yeah. right? Um, and yeah. so for, for students of color, it can be really damaging to be in an environment where your identity and the things that you've experienced are actively denied or, or at worst, you know, um, uh, you're told that they don't matter and they don't exist and they're not valid, right? And so yeah. uh, I want to be sure that that's not lost here in the conversation as well. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, listen, thank you. I know we went over a couple minutes, but I, I really appreciate having both of you here. I'm going to keep my eye out um, for Stanford Spark. Uh, before we go, uh, do you have any um, uh, social media handles or um, websites you'd like to share for people that are interested in following your work or any new books or anything like that that you'd like to share so we can make sure that people know how to uh, keep up with your research? Yeah, I'm at Cam Griffey at, uh, at Twitter, uh, at Cam Griffey, uh, two S there. Okay. Uh, I'm on Twitter, too, at J. Nick Sullivan, I think. I, I can't promise to be too great at updating that, but um, <laughs> but I'll, I'll do my best and uh, and keep an eye out for other, you know, I think Camilla and I both care about writing these things and publishing articles and t talking with people about this. So sure. do it can. Sure. Okay. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I really appreciate both of you being here. You've added to me. I'm sure you've added to so many people who will listen and are listening currently, wishing you both great success in the future with your research. And I'm going to be keeping up with you and hope to hear from you again. Go well. Stay well. Thank you. You as well.